Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading this morning is Revelation chapter 4, which is on page 1236, 1236 in the Church Bibles. So, Revelation chapter 4, starting at the first verse. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also also in in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, round the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all round, even under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Uh, Let me add my welcome to Matt's. It's great to see you this morning. Um, yeah, it is a big church, isn't it? If you are new with us, it is, it's a hard place to settle in. I know many of you have been struggling for years to try and settle into us, uh, into a, the church family here. Um, I've been here three years. I'm in a very privileged position getting to be up here, so lots of people know me. Uh, but I know lots of people can often feel forgotten in church. Do, do come and talk to me if that's you. I'd love to hear about your experience. Um, anyway, uh, this morning, let's focus in. On Revelation 4. I wonder, have you heard of the worship wars? The worship wars? Does that ring a bell? Apparently it was a phenomenon in, the, um, in America, in the States, uh, during the 80s and 90s, as churches sought to become more relevant uh, to their culture, they replaced the old hymns, choirs, organs with drums, guitars, and worship songs. And all-out war could often erupt between uh, different generations of Christians. 
Now, of course, what is big and brash over there in the States usually plays out much more politely on this side of the pond. But make no mistake, there have been battles amongst us. I've, I've noticed in, in our circles, it's often over the definition of worship. But whether we're talking about the style of worship or the definition, I wonder who the main winner is of all this warring. This last week, we've seen cracks, haven't we, in the forces allied in the war effort against Russia. NATO has refused to provide a timeline for Ukraine's future membership of the alliance. Zelensky has lashed out. Our own Ben Wallace has hit back, urging him to be more grateful. And who's winning this war of words? Well, the real winner, of course, is Putin, who longs to sow discord amongst those who should be allies. What can I say in the worship wars? How the devil must laugh when we war about style and forget that idolatry is the real enemy, worshiping anything or anyone other than the true God from the heart. And make no mistake, it is possible to be an idolater whether you're singing songs ancient or modern, to an organ or a guitar. Haven't we seen that in the letters to the seven churches that we've been studying these last few weeks? Two churches were still worshipping Christ well, but they were weak and under pressure from persecution to to turn away from him. Two more were worshipping Christ fairly well, but were being tempted to idolatry through teaching that offered license to sexual desires that crossed the line. Finally, there were three churches who were simply wandering away from worship. Ephesus, orthodox but loveless. Sardis, who wanted to be known as good Christian people but didn't want to be known as Christ's people. And lastly, Laodicea, who, well, to put it simply, worshipped wealth. You see then the real worship war? It's the fight not only to believe in, but also to love Christ. To own him as our God before all people with pride. The fight to delight in and depend on him, not wealth or anything else. And to win that battle. You know, it's never been an easy one. To win that battle, God shows up and resupplies us with all that we need. What is it that we need? We need to see him. We need a vision of his power and glory to refuel our worship. Florian agrees. That's good to know. And supplying that kind of vision of his glory is actually one of his signature moves in Scripture, especially at times when God's people are under pressure to stop worshipping him. We see such visions in Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6. Both prophets living in times when their nation was turning away from God and abandoning him for idols. And God kept them and their disciples going by showing himself to them. Let me read to you from Ezekiel 1. Ezekiel saw someone who was like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. 
Isaiah writes in chapter 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Well, Revelation chapters 4 to 5 give us such heavenly visions of God to move us to worship together around his throne. 4 verse 1. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard at first speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. Only, of course, we're not shown what must take place next. We have to wait for chapter 6 before future events are described. Apparently, we are going to come back now to chapter 6 at some point in the future. I don't know when. But notice that for now, we don't get down to the business of forecasting the future. But John in the Spirit first focuses on the majesty of God. Verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby. This is our first point then. See the Creator King's glory. Notice though that as we try to see him, the throne only has the appearance appearance, the appearance of Jasper and Ruby. Do you see, we're not actually seeing God as he is in his essence, in his being. Just like with Ezekiel 1 and the vision there, we're only given the appearance of the likeness of his glory. Do you remember a few weeks ago when we began our series, I told you about the time when for a bet I spent a whole school assembly not looking at Prince Charles. Do you remember that? 20 quid, easiest 20 quid I ever made. Well, do you know what I have seen in the flesh? The imperial state crown that was placed on his head uh, when he took the throne. It's a crown of royal majesty and beauty, isn't it? Now, of course, without these jewels on his head, he would look just like any member of the British public, just a man. But do you see that here in heaven... The opposite is true. The ruby and the jasper don't enhance God's majesty. Rather, they don't do him justice. The translucent beauty of a blood-red ruby, the deep mottled red of an opaque jasper, they are just a pale reflection of his beauty. And if you could see the infinite, eternal God as he really is, which you cannot... But if you could, then the precious gems would just seem like drab little pebbles compared to his beauty. Did you notice that above all, what we see is what is around his throne or before his throne? It's like the sun, isn't it? We can't look it full in the face. We have to look around it at the radiance of its aura because its beauty is too powerful for us to see directly. So we see, verse 3, the emerald rainbow encircling the throne. The elders, in verse 4, surrounding the throne. The lightning, verse 5, from the throne. The blazing lamp, second half of verse 5, in front of the throne. The crystal sea, verse 6, also in front of the throne. And immediately around the throne, verse 6b, the four living creatures 
with faces like a lion, ox, man, eagle, but we never see the face of the one on the throne. Do you see then? To behold the beauty of the God whom, as John puts it in his gospel, whom no one has seen or can see, to behold the beauty of the invisible creator, we must see him through the beauty of the visible things that he has made. We see the glory of the creator through his creatures and the glory he has given them. You know, that's actually something you can do with anything in creation. One of you told me recently of a concert you'd been to. I think it was Harry Styles or something. Um, Yes, even through Harry Styles. Watching the whole crowd swept along together in the music, it struck you as a pale imitation of the day that we would be swept along in worship of a a far greater um, uh, being, God himself. Notice then that the way to battle idolatry, false worship, is not always to deny ourselves some created thing that we love. Actually, often the way to battle idolatry is to enjoy that created thing, but to remember who gave it to us and to worship him, the giver, for it. If you're tempted to worship Harry Styles or Taylor Swift, or if you're from a different era, perhaps, I don't know, the Beatles or uh, Tina Turner, well, the answer, of course, is not necessarily stop listening to their music, but to see beyond it to the majesty of the one who made music in the first place and then to worship him. From the beauty of the smallest insect, excluding wasps, obviously, to the blazing glory of the sun, all of it points to the majesty of the maker. If only we see creation as it really is, an overflow of the power and beauty of his throne. After all, the rainbow around his throne, did you see it in verse 3? That rainbow reminds us that this is the God who, though he ought long ago to have wiped out his rebellious creation in judgment, nevertheless sustains it by his grace and power. For when God put the rainbow in the sky after the flood, he promised Noah that by his power as creator, he would maintain seed time and harvest. Cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, he upholds the laws of physics that keep the earth orbiting the sun. I wonder, have we lost our nerve on this truth? And so had our worship weakened because of the hostility of Dawkins and other scientists who fancy themselves as philosophers when they are not. You know, believing that there is a creator who governs the universe That's what gave rise to the discipline of science. There are laws governing the universe that we can observe only because there is first a God on the throne who devised and decrees those laws still today. To believe they came from nowhere is absurd. So, Johannes Kepler, one of the founders of the discipline of science in the 17th century, put put it this way, science is merely thinking God's thoughts after him, a famous quote. One of his less famous quotes is that 
we must all, as scientists, guard against the tendency to glorify our own minds instead of giving the glory to God. That's prescient, isn't it? Would that the scientific guild would listen. But even if haughty humans have forgotten the glory of their maker, do you see God's heavenly counsel still knows his central place of honor in the universe? Look at verse 4. Verse 4, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders, 24 thrones and 24 elders. You know, there's some debate about who these are. Are they angelic beings? Are they human beings? Well, next week we're going to see pretty conclusively, I think, that they're angelic, these elders. They sing in chapter 5, verse 10, about the people for whom Christ died, and they talk about them. You made them a kingdom of priests, not you made us a kingdom of priests. Nevertheless, these angelic elders surely represent us, God's people, don't they? There's 24 of them representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the New Testament. Is that a strange idea to you? That there should be angelic beings representing God's people? We've seen it all through the letters in Revelation. Each letter in chapters 2 to 3 was addressed to the angel of each church as well as that church. Read Daniel and you'll see the same thing again and again. Read Matthew's gospel and you will discover that you each have an angel who stands before your heavenly father representing you to him. Isn't that amazing? But how difficult for those of us who, as Kepler put it, glorify our own minds to accept the existence of a heavenly world beyond our sight. But these angelic elders are revealed to us by God so that seeing their greatness, we might see beyond them to the greatness of his throne. The elders exist to help us worship God. And worshiping him should not be hard. Look at verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. These images are taken uh, straight from the time Israel gathered to meet with God face to face at Mount Sinai in the Exodus. God appeared to them face to face there at the mountain with a blast of a trumpet in thunder and lightning and thick cloud and a blazing fire. Now I say face to face to face, but of course, as Moses insists, they didn't see any form, but only the great storm blazing in front of God that pointed to the power of the God who wields 1.8 gigawatts of lightning bolt as if it were a mere plaything. How great is he? On that day, 70 human elders of Israel went halfway up Mount Sinai to meet with him. And they saw the invisible God, we are told. But then when it comes to the description of what they actually saw, we are told only of a pavement of lapis lazuli, as blue as the sky before his throne. Which is, I guess, a bit like this crystal sea of glass that we see in verse 6 before his throne. Here then is the God 
who rules over all creation, sky and sea. The creator king, whose glory is so great, no human can see him as he truly is. Elders. That's actually the name given to church leaders in the New Testament. As you'll notice, I'm no heavenly elder, very, very human. But it is the job of any earthly elder in the church to lead you to this God in worship. So please don't judge those of us who uh, teach you up here on how well we impress you with our skill with words. Judge us above all on whether we impress upon you how worthy of worship our God is. Judge us on whether we worship him in our own lives. Help us do that. We're prone to idolatry just as much as anybody else. And together, together, can we not all together unite in our pursuit of seeing him and worshipping him? Worship the creator on earth as in heaven. That's our final point. The scene now gives way to sung worship. And this worship is meant to invite us in to move us to sing of God to Uh, The trainees and I had um, a few days away last week. We often do that in the summer. Uh, Mostly we were, of course, doing serious study, reading, listening to some talks. Uh, But I'd also planned for us to do something fun uh, together as a team, a bit of team bonding. I wanted to take us to the fifth day of the test, uh, the Ashes test at Headingley. I was a little worried uh, because Poppy admitted she had no interest in cricket. Luke seemed lukewarm and Nathaniel only said it sounded all right which, to be fair, can mean many things in Nathaniel's mouth, uh, depending on the precise intonation. But I was pretty sure that by the end of the day, with the help of the Headingley crowd, they'd all have been singing the different songs praising the various cricketing heroes of England. Some of them are very catchy, aren't they? I've heard a new Mark Wood song this week to the tune of Driftwood by Travis, including such eternal verses as They don't want to open, he's coming for their poles. Batters become frozen, he falls over when he bowls. (laughs) Well, I don't think that particular song is going to stand the test of time. Uh, No pun intended. But heaven's songs, heaven's songs will be sung forever. With ever-increasing wonder and joy. As God's creatures finally grasp more and more who their eternal maker is. As we push on into the endless depths of his infinite glory. But that singing is meant to begin now. As we see heaven singing the creator's praises, it's meant to carry us along, to draw us in, to inspire us to join in. Even to challenge us and warn us if we don't yet worship him. We're given to see what those who stand in the very presence of God see. Verse 6, the middle of the verse. Verse 6, in the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Who are these strange creatures? 
Well, do you know, if you were to read again Ezekiel 1 that we started with, or Isaiah 6, you would find angelic beings that look just like these guys. In Ezekiel 1, we see the cherubim. Angelic beings who have, just like here in verse 7, the faces of lion, ox, human, eagle. In Isaiah 6, we see angels called seraphim with six wings like these angels here in verse 8. Each had six wings. These then are angelic beings, cherubim and seraphim, or maybe perhaps cheriseraphim, as one writer put it. Angelic beings who are so great, you would be tempted to worship them if you met them face to face, and eye to, well, eye to very, very many eyes. In fact, these creatures in Isaiah and Ezekiel, interestingly, were just like statues found in ancient Assyria and Babylon and Persian palaces. Statues of what the other people of the ancient world treated as deities, as gods, the Lamassu they were known. Here's some pictures of said statues stolen by the French, now in the Louvre, and uh, some more of one stolen by us in the British Museum. Do you see why God might depict angelic beings in this way? Not because they necessarily do actually look like that. I suspect they're beyond our sight just as much as God is. But I take it the point is that creatures, even angelic creatures, even the greatest angelic creatures must never receive the worship that belongs by rights only to their creator. And boy, is it rubbed in in our passage that they are only creatures. Verse 6, living creatures. Verse 7, living creatures. Verse 8, living creatures. Verse 9, living creatures. You see, the greatest angelic beings may be great. Indeed, these represent the fiercest, strongest, wisest, and fastest of all earthly creatures. But their greatness is still only ever the greatness of creatures who were made to signpost us to the greatness of the Creator. They live only because God, who, verse 9 and verse 10, lives forever and ever. They live only because the one who has life in himself forever chooses to give them life too. No wonder they cannot take their eyes all of them, off their God. These creatures see far better than we do, don't they? Isn't that why we're shown their eyes? Not only are they covered in eyes, they're also right next to the throne of God. God has given them a power of sight far beyond ours. They give a whole new meaning to fixing your eyes on God. And with their incredible power of sight, training all their myriad eyes on God. They never tire of looking at him. They cannot get enough. Middle of verse 8, day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. How sad then, how pathetic then, how blind then are we when we make church about 
me, about my preferences. When we want people to think of us as the great ones. Wouldn't it be the height of blindness to worship anyone or anything else but the creator king? If angelic creatures this great worship him in endless wonder, then what should weak little creatures like us be doing? We once were not, but now we are, simply because he chose for us to be. That is what makes him holy, holy, holy. Do you know what holy means? It doesn't mean you've... um, Got to patch up your clothes because there's lots of holes in them. It just means set apart, different. And there's a sense in which anything can be holy. Even unholy people can be made holy to God when God sets them apart for a particular purpose in his plans. Anything or anyone can be holy in one sense. But God alone is holy in absolute terms. God is the only one who is holy, holy, holy. Because to be holy, holy, holy is to be utterly distinct, utterly different, utterly set set apart and separate. And he is so because he is the only uncreated creator of all. Isn't that why in response to the treble cry of holy, the elders burst into a song about God's creation of all things? Verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created, and have their being. Here is the heart of what makes him so utterly different to us, and so worthy of your worship. We are only because he is. We came to be only because he willed it. But whether we were or were not, he would simply be forever. Just consider for a moment the power of such a creator. Rightly does he have the throne. For every breath in our lungs, every atom that makes up our body, and everything else in all creation, every animal, star, galaxy, quark, whatever they may be, all of them, all of them in their vast and unfathomable array are held in existence right now by the conscious knowledge and decision of their maker. Just think how vast is his mind. No wonder the psalmist says, your thoughts are beyond number. I could never count them. I wonder, is his power as your creator, is it enough to fuel your worship of him? It should be. But actually, we're only at half time. 
Not in the sermon, don't worry, we're at the end of the sermon. (laughs) But the heavenly worship service that we've just been watching, with all its songs, or hymns maybe, carries on next week. Because we we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of the reasons to worship him. Come back for part two. You were, O God, and you were blessed before the world began. Of your eternity possessed before time's hourglass ran. You needed none your praise to sing, as if your joy could fade. Could you have needed anything you nothing could have made? You spoke, and heaven and earth appeared in answer to your call. Their maker's voice they heard and feared, which is the creature's all. It's all my joy to sing to you, the maker of my tongue. Lord, other lords would my love woo, but I to you belong. Amen.